Welcome to another home-cooked edition of Downbound Counts. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government, and with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. In week three of home recording, it's a big week for the census, so we'll head further down ballot to discuss what state legislative chambers to keep an eye on. We'll analyze a campaign ad that hit the airwaves last week, and then we'll bring on Bloomberg government politics reporter Emily Wilkins to talk about her coverage of the quickly changing campaign world. We're there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, Cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Up first is Jero's Gem. Thank you, Kyle. Jero's Gem, my political number of the week, is 328.2 million. That was the estimated population of the United States as of July 1st, 2019, according to estimates by the U.S. Census Bureau. When the Census Bureau released its county population estimates last week, it recorded that the most smaller population counties are actually shrinking in population, and larger population counties are expanding. We're seeing this growth in areas of Florida and Texas and parts of the West and the Southwest. The most populous U.S. county, Los Angeles County in Southern California, has more than 10 million people, which is greater than the population of 40 states, And it's also greater than the 1,174 least populous counties combined. Get that. The Census Bureau has long prepared for its once-per-decade official population headcount. And the National Census Day is this Wednesday, April the 1st, just two days from now as we speak on Monday afternoon, March the 30th. And when you respond to the census, if you haven't already, you'll tell it where you live as of April the 1st. And barring any further coronavirus-related delays, we will get those headcounts at the end of this year. And those state-by-state population totals will govern how the U.S. House seats will be reapportioned. We'll talk more about that in the 2020 census and its implications for politics and down-ballot elections later in the program. But 328.2 million, the estimated U.S. population as of 2019, that's your Jero's Gem of the Week. All right. Up next, more census talk, more redistricting, and more state legislative elections. This is Bloomberg Governments. Down ballot counts. I filled out my census questionnaire a couple weeks ago online. For everyone's sake, hopefully more Americans than normal have time to fill out theirs and can limit the number of census workers who have to go door to door this year. But beyond the logistics of covering the census this year, Greg, the final count, as you noted, has major implications on reapportionment, how many congressional districts are awarded to each state, and after that, redistricting, the decennial drawing of congressional district lines. Next year is when much of that work will happen. So the state legislative elections this year in states where the state legislature draws the lines are something both parties are already investing big money in. Greg, you've reported on these efforts already. What's the latest there? What are you watching? Yeah, it really does underscore the importance of state legislative elections uh, as as they pertain to the importance of redistricting in that um, in most states, not all states, but in most states, you know, control of redistricting depends on who controls uh, that the levers of government. It's like a like writing a bill into law. You know that um, you know if you have the governorship of one party and you also control the state house and the state senate, you can pass a redistricting map uh, to your party's partisan advantage. And so that's why both parties have been gearing up for some time, not just this year, to prepare for the redistricting wars that are going to take place in 2021 and 2022. 
And we have a number of state legislatures, Kyle, where the balance of power is pretty pretty thinly divided between the two parties. And some states will just take a flip of just a few districts in state Senate seats or state House seats for the chamber to go from control from one party uh, to the other. So in most states, as I mentioned, redistricting uh, is controlled by governors and state legislatures. In some states, you have kind of nonpartisan or at least as nonpartisan as they can be, independent redistricting commissions. But it just really makes the state legislative elections in November all that important. You know, I think back to 2010 when the Republicans dominated elections at all levels of office in the first midterm election of Barack Obama. That was a disaster for Democrats, and it gave Republicans a big upper hand in the redrawing of lines in the 2011 and 2012 uh, redistricting uh, years. Yeah, and it was so bad. I remember we weren't sure if Democrats would have a chance to win back the House majority until 2022. Um, of course, Democrats stormed back and uh, netted 40 seats in, in 2018. But, um, you know, a lot of the states, I think, where we're going to be watching some of these chambers does kind of overlap with the presidential election. So that should be interesting. A state like Arizona, where I think Republicans have a, a one-seat edge, I think, one-seat majority um, in, the, in the state house, um, And that's the other thing is, if Democrats or Republicans are trying to win back a chamber, sometimes it's just so that they have a say in redistricting. It's not necessarily winning both chambers and having the governorship. It's just making sure that the other party's map can't get through. That's exactly right, Kyle. And I think when you mentioned that, the first state I thought of was Texas, uh, where Republicans control the governorship and the state Senate and the state House. Um, Texas is a big electoral prize, uh, 36 U.S. House seats. Uh, projections, um, I think, are going to give currently Texas three more seats because it continues to have an above-average population growth rate. And Republicans uh, you know, hold most of the seats in the U.S. House delegation in Texas. But what Texas Democrats are trying to do in November is to win control of the state house, which they see um, as one piece of the redistricting you know, table they can have a seat at. They don't expect to redraw lines just by winning the state house, of course, because you'll still have a Republican governor and a Republican state senate. But if they kind of, um, they, they certainly probably won't come to a compromise on any map. But if a map goes to the courts, at least that's what the Democrats want. They want to. They don't want the Republicans to ride roughshod over them in a state legislative process. They want to have a seat at the table so they can at least force any maps to be drawn by courts rather than Republicans. That's right. And, you know, we'll be looking at other states like North Carolina and Minnesota um, for a lot of these uh, chambers to watch. So, all right, well, let's leave it there. And now let's take a listen to one of the latest coronavirus-themed ads. I'm Amy McGrath. And like many of you, I'm cooped up at home with Eric and our kids. But we know we're fortunate. Because of the coronavirus, we decided to focus our campaign on helping families and seniors throughout Kentucky. We launched Commonwealth Common Health, so our volunteers can assist Kentuckians in need during this crisis. You can sign up at amymcgrath.com. I approve this message because we all have to look out for each other. I got to say, Greg, this one really hit home for me. For the listeners, Amy McGrath, who ran a competitive race for the House in 2018 and is now challenging Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, uh, she's standing in the, in the foreground talking direct to camera, and behind her is her husband and three kids. One of the kids is running around in a circle and swinging a sword and hitting his siblings, and then the older one at the very end throws an airplane right at the camera. 
Uh, I have two young daughters who I can hear upstairs right now. And this is my life right now, uh, doing video conferences, editing stories, and homeschooling a couple of kids. Uh, it's absolutely insane. And it's like that, I'm sure, for everyone with kids. So the ad likely resonates. Yeah, that's right, Kyle. It is kind of multitasking on steroids, which a lot of uh, a lot of families have to do right now at these uh, trying times with everyone having to self-isolate with uh, family members. Um, so, yeah, when I saw this ad, yeah, I noticed the kids playing in the background. Um, kind of an empathetic message in that uh, McGrath is trying to get across that, hey, we're staying indoors with our kids just like all of you, although she does acknowledge that you know, she's more fortunate than some others who are really struggling uh, during these difficult times. You know, she touts an effort by her campaign to match healthy Kentuckians who want to help out and assist uh, Kentuckians who are more vulnerable members of the community. And so I think she's trying to send a message about the importance of local communities and the state rallying together. You know, McGrath did have some tougher ads against Mitch McConnell prior to this spot, but this is a more you know, reassuring, inspiring, comforting message and not this sort of slashing political attack you might see from candidates you know, running a, a normal campaign at normal times. We're seeing this not just from McGrath, but also Susan Collins of Maine and Sarah Gideon, her uh, likely Democratic opponent, who have also aired kind of coronavirus-related ads that focus more on, you know, uh, you know our state's going to pull together, our communities are going to pull together. So more of an empathetic, reassuring ad and not so much of a uh, typical campaign, uh, you know, a negative or contrast uh, campaign television ad. Yeah, and if you want to connect with voters and donors right now, uh, this seems like a great way to do it. Uh, that ad is also a nice segue into our next segment. After the break, we'll talk about how campaign life continues to change in the age of coronavirus. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Joining us now is Emily Wilkins, a Bloomberg government politics reporter who on a normal week would be prepping for another few days chasing lawmakers on Capitol Hill. For the past two weeks, she's been writing about the coronavirus fallout for congressional campaigns. Emily, thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. Great to be on. Okay, I want to start with fundraising because Tuesday is the first quarter deadline. What kind of effect are political professionals expecting social distancing and these crushing job losses and just overall uncertainty about life as we know it on raising money for a campaign? So when we're actually going to get to see these numbers, which isn't going to be until mid-April, I've been warned to realize that the full impact isn't going to show up in these numbers because these candidates had all of January, all of February, even the start of March, really, to campaign and just continue things as normal. It wasn't until the last couple weeks that things really had to get canceled. And so what they're actually telling me to watch out for is the second quarter, so that's April, May, and June. And those are the numbers that they're expecting to see a big, big hit on. Uh, they're expecting fundraising to potentially be down as much as half. Um, the lawmakers are still out there. They're still fundraising. There's still an election in November. Um, but def it's definitely much more difficult to do now than it was previously. Did anyone express um, any sort of anxiety about picking up the phone right now and asking for money for a campaign rather than like for relief efforts or anything? Yeah. When I talked to a lot of the candidates who are doing these campaigns right now, a lot of them said that when they call donors, the first question is, how are you? How are things? How are you doing? They almost sort of feel it out. You know, if the donor seems like they're doing pretty well, they might go ahead and make an ask. But they're very, very cognizant that a lot of these donors have taken a huge financial hit or about to take a huge financial 
financial hit because of the coronavirus. And so it's been a matter of sort of, you know, just talking to people. A number of uh, candidates who I spoke with said that it's still important to talk to donors now because it's about building relationships. And they're hoping that, you know, in a couple months, hopefully if this gets better, if things even out a little bit, if there's more certainty in the markets, then they can, you know, come back and, and continue having the donor help out the campaign. And Emily, what are some things campaigns are doing to replace some of that time they might spend fundraising? And, and can digital fundraising help kind of close the gap from the uh, the loss of uh, or at least the, the less amount of time they're spending on maybe traditional fundraising? Not really. I spoke with uh, one strategist who said that usually through digital, she tells her clients to ask for smaller donation amounts because that tends to what works with digital advertising. I mean, the big money events, those are the in-person things. Um, there are also phone calls. So a lot of campaigns are still working the phones, um, doing basically at-home phone banks where everyone's just making calls from their respective houses. A number of campaigns are also starting to shift to more service and charity-based efforts as well. Yeah, I thought I saw I saw a California congressional candidate Ted Howes. Um, there was a handing out bread on, on Monday morning uh, and a line of cars outside his campaign office. It was pretty remarkable to, to see something like that. Yeah, there he's a, one of the candidates, I think, who's sort of, I, I mean, a lot of candidates, I mean, any candidate at this point that you talk to will point to town halls that they've done, or ca- charities they've promoted, or, you know, small businesses that they've reminded people to buy from restaurants and whatnot. But uh, Tim House's campaign, I think, is one that has gone a, a little bit above and beyond that. Um, they started doing donations where uh, they basically collected food, uh, paper towels, hygiene products. They're putting together care packages and they're delivering those throughout California's 10th district and uh, actually a little bit beyond, according to a campaign spokesman. So they've got that. And then you've seen um, uh, Amy McGrath's campaign in Kentucky. Uh, She has started an effort where she's had, I think, 150 volunteers sign up already. And their goal is to help those who are stuck at home, whether because they're elderly or because they have some sort of immune disease and it's just not safe for them to be outside right now. And you've also seen efforts from Joe Kennedy, who suspended all campaign activities and has since been working to fundraise money, not for himself, but for various charities. And Emily, are some campaigns like sweating this kind of loss of fundraising time more than others? I mean, incumbents, I guess, have had more time, a longer time in the cycle to raise money. Do you, do you sense that, you know, challengers are going to be hurt more, open seat candidates, different types of candidates, or is it just too soon to tell? I mean, I'd say for sure that we're, this is going to be a harder struggle for candidates that don't have name recognition, that, you know, don't have the same clout and and knowledge as the current incumbents. I mean, obviously, it's a little bit different for some of these candidates because they currently hold statewide offices, so they do still have connections. But some of these candidates, they've never run before. They're totally a new name. Um, I was talking with a strategist the other day who said, you know, he's a media strategist. He does TV. He does radio. But he was like, you know, the most important thing for a lot of these candidates is going out, going door to door, canvassing, talking to people, having the these full in-depth conversations and you know that that cannot happen right now so yeah it is a bigger challenge for some of these candidates who decide to run for their first or maybe second time they've never held an office before and they just don't have the same reserves uh, in funding as some of the incumbents do emily we've seen a lot of states delay their primaries and it looks like there's uh, last count uh, was 18 congressional primaries in june now 
um, because of all the delays. What other kinds of things are states doing to sort of ease the process for voters to cast their ballots? Yeah, everyone mark June 2nd on your calendar and circle it because we have so many competitions, or not competitions, but elections going on that day. Um, the other thing that a lot of states are doing are they're turning to mail-in ballots. They are either eliminating restrictions on mail-in ballots. Some states previously said, you know, you need to be sick, you need to be in the military, you need to have certain excuses. And at this point, a lot of states have been like, nope, like, if you want a mail-in ballot, you can request it, that's fine. Different states have approached this different ways. Uh, Wyoming has canceled all in-person voting. They're just doing mail-in ballots. You've seen other states say, you know, we are going to keep polling places open, but we will also try to get everyone a mail-in ballot. You've seen states like Alaska go ahead and extend the date for when people can mail in their mail-in ballots. So I think this is going to be a bit of a developing story. Um, It does take a long time usually to develop these mail-in ballot campaigns. The Kansas Democrats decided to do it way last year. And, you know, it takes time to put something like this together. So it'll be interesting to see how states handle this when they only have a couple weeks to get out all of these ballots and then get them back in. And I'm wondering if these states have the infrastructure. You mentioned states are kind of operating differently on this. I wonder if they have the infrastructure to kind of handle all these ballots. And I'm kind of curious if any campaigns have kind of talked about how their strategies, how their outreach efforts are going to change with, um, say, a longer period. It seems like, you know, we've been moving toward this for a while now where we don't really have a single election day anymore. Even before the pandemic, we had uh, kind of mail-in ballots, absentee ballots, early votes becoming more and more popular. I mean, do you get the sense that candidates are kind of preparing for a kind of a longer period of outreach to voters with uh, kind of more people moving to mail-in ballots? Yes. Yes, there are campaigns who are definitely cognizant of the fact that, you know, they expected their primary challenge to run up to a certain date. And now they have a couple extra months of campaigning and they have to make those resources stretch. They have to, you know, continue their their ground game as much as they can right now. Um, I had one candidate tell me, she's like, you know, you walk into any campaign office and there's that whiteboard and there's that number on the whiteboard of how many days to the election. She's like, and that's kind of been upended now. I mean, most places now know when their primary is going to be. We still, though, have a couple states like um, Hawaii that has not set an end date for their mail-in ballots. And we have states like Wisconsin where there's currently a bunch of lawsuits going through. They're trying to bump the date back from April 7th. Meanwhile, the governor there has said, nope, we're going to keep it on April 7th. So we'll see what happens there. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there, Emily. So glad you could join the show. I think, uh, we'll see you again soon, really soon. I hope we want to have you, uh, with a recurring role on the pod this year. So thank you for coming on. Awesome. I look forward to it. Thank you guys so much. Miss seeing you in the office. Same here. This is Down Ballot Counts. Now, before we close the show, we've got a parting shot of trivia for you. That's right. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, the listeners, with a political trivia question. But first, let's review last week's question. What was the first state to establish an exclusive vote-by-mail system for all of its elections? Uh, Kyle, you have an answer for me. I'm going to guess Oregon, because Ron Wyden's from there. You are correct. Yes, very well done, Kyle. Uh, Oregon voters in 1998 adopted a ballot initiative that expanded vote-by-mail to all primary and general elections. But I've been around long enough to remember Oregon using vote-by-mail in a special U.S. Senate election in early 1996 when Ron Wyden 
the uh, Democratic senator from Oregon you just mentioned, Kyle, was uh, elected uh, to the Senate for the first time. Oregon is one of five states that as of 2020 conduct their elections exclusively by mail. And now for this week's question. So the House of Representatives has been fixed at 435 members for more than a century. That's a statistic that's going to, we're going to be repeating a lot as we talk more about the census and reapportionment. However, the House was much smaller earlier in our history, and my question is, within, let's say, 10, how many members were there in the very first session of the U.S. House of Rep- Representatives as provided by the Constitution back in the late 18th century? You may email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet it at us using the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. We'll reveal the answer and ask a new question on next week's program. That's a good one. All right, and that's it for us today. But before we go, Greg, what else are you watching this week? Well, it is Census Week, as we mentioned. Um, you know, today, we, as we speak on Monday afternoon, March the 30th, the National Census Day is on April the 1st. And so the Census Bureau online has some kind of interesting tools where you can look at the self-response rate for different areas, different states. Um, so it'll be interesting to see just how many people decide to uh, respond to the census online. I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg Government's parent company, sought the Democratic presidential nomination. He endorsed Joe Biden on March 4th. The producer for Down Ballot Counts is David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you next week. Those nine justices in Washington, they can be pretty hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the opinions, and much, much more. So check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.